2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome once again to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Luca Heverle. Today we'll talk to Dr. Nicholas Sherman about his new book, Britain's Informal Empire in Spain, 1830 to 1950, Free Trade, Protectionism and Military Power, from Palgrave Macmillan nick welcome to the show hi nice to meet you luca likewise so nick to start i'd like to ask you to present yourself for the audience who is nick sherman
1: (laughs) Uh, i'm currently a research fellow at the university of nottingham in uh, the the midlands part of england Uh, i've had a long career as an economist as a planner and uh, in in management. Uh, But in the latter part of my career, I have have, uh, turned to uh, academic life, basically. That's who I am. And I got a a master's degree uh, 10 years ago at uh, the University of London and then a PhD at the University of Nottingham. Great. And Nick, how did this project come about? Yes, it was uh, very interesting. My original uh, research, uh, my MA research, was into British economic investment and its relationship to the non-intervention policy uh, that Britain pursued in the Spanish Civil War. Um, And I knew that the conventional view was that Britain wanted to stay out of the Civil War for fear of destabilizing the European balance of power. That was the usual uh, straightforward explanation. But that theory wasn't enough, in my mind, to explain why less than 10 years later, in 1945, a radical socialist government, the Labour government of 1945, was prepared to keep Franco in power when the rest of the world uh, wanted him gone, uh, the only uh, fascist, uh, apart from Salazar, who uh, survived the Second World War in Europe. Uh, And it seemed to me that there was a a much deeper explanation than the politics of the 1930s. And the the deeper I got into it, the more I realized how deeply entwined the uh, Spanish politics, Spanish economy was with the British uh, politics uh, and economics. And so the project gradually unfolded as I dug deeper and deeper, and I found a turning point in the 1830s, that's when uh, the absolutist monarch, Ferdinand VII, uh, died. And a new era of what the liberal monarchy uh, was launched with British support. And so it seemed to me that that turning point uh, led to a deep involvement of Britain in the Spanish uh, politics and economics. and that's the basis that uh, I, I went into this project and tried to uncover the both the events of the previous uh, of the subsequent century up to the 1950s and uh, and the reasons for it. and that's that's what drove the project, if you like. Mm-hmm. A certain long durée perspective, if you want. Absolutely, and I think that's very important, Luca. that I, I think too much of historiography has concentrated on quite short phases, uh, and has uh, and that has helped uh, has tended to mean that the emphasis has not or insufficient emphasis has been placed on longer term factors. So part of uh, what I was trying to do with this book was precisely, as you say, to look at the long durée and to try and find those forces that operated over the whole period. Right. And what would you say is the main contribution of your book to academia and public discourse? Two things that really stood out for me. Uh, First of all, the extent to which Spain's development politically and economically, uh, particularly from the 19th century, I mean, one can look uh, more deeply at the entangled empires of Spain and Britain in the 18th century, but the uh, real change came in the 19th century when Britain became deeply involved in uh, Spain's economy and politics. And my, uh, what I think I've shown uh, through this book is how influential Britain was in uh, shaping uh, Spain's development, um, and particularly how Spain uh, was shaped by the interests of Britain's industrial, new industrial uh, and trade empire of the 19th century. And it also showed how that relationship changed with the growth of the British Empire in the 19th century, reaching its climax, if you like, in the late 19th century, and then its decline during the 20th century. So we could actually see this book also as the story of the British Empire seen through Spanish eyes. And uh, the second uh, issue that I I believe uh, it Uh, it does, is to show how uh, Britain's interest in trade and its deep involvement in in investment, especially in minerals, uh, drove that uh, relationship. And and this is the second half of the book, showing what the reaction in Spain itself was to that pressure, how Spain's politics, how the discourse, the economic uh, discussion and issues that were raised were around uh, free trade and the resistance by the protectionists. So there was uh, not only a deep involvement of, of Britain, there was a resistance movement, if you like, in Spain, and... Uh, in In the protectionists, and what I want to do is to bring out the importance of that protectionist not as uh simply uh, stop it, we want the world to go round. They came up with an alternative positive um, uh, strategy, an alternative to free trade, and I think historians have not taken that. Dimension of what I call the liberal free, the liberal protectionists, uh, have given it sufficient emphasis. So those are the two contributions: Britain, Britain's deep involvement in Spain for a century, over a century, and the resistance by elements of uh, of, of Spanish society.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, before we dig deeper into your research, I'd like to ask you a question about the archival work you did. What would you like to highlight uh, about this, this work?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it was pursued in both Britain and Spain, in the archives of both Britain and Spain. The, the key one for me, um, I suppose, was the archives in Kew in London of the Public Records Office, an extraordinary treasure trove, extremely well organised, in which you can track through uh, the discussions between ambassadors and the government uh, in meticulous detail. Uh, so that was one very important source, uh, not least in the 1830s when Britain had a particularly strong influence in Spain. But it runs all the way through to the cabinet discussions in the Labour government that I talked about earlier in 1945, um, a fascinating picture of how cabinet government uh, was was running. So that was one key one. Uh, the other very important source for me was the uh, extraordinarily good Um, archive of newspapers in Spain. I think it's one of the best collections of uh, Spanish newspapers, really well indexed uh, with a, a very good background. And the press in Spain in the 19th century was extraordinarily varied, quite a narrow readership, quite a narrow set of class interests. But within that, uh, extraordinarily varied with papers popping up, um, publishing for a few years, highlighting issues. So you could get a sense of certainly what uh, some of the key uh, key actors were 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 talking about and discussing. So those were the main ones. And then uh, I also, in the Spanish archives, looked at uh, uh, Juan Guell, for example, was uh, has got a very good archive in Barcelona. Um, a, a, a key uh, a key source and interest of, of mine was how the Catalonians uh, reacted to, to 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 the British uh, imperial. Power uh, and particularly the, the the British attempt to destroy their industry. So Barcelona uh, was a very good one, and then there are a number of um, uh, Spanish government uh, archives in the alcala de Henares, the big government um, uh, documents there. But I put that in that order um, of, of importance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now we can begin
2: to to discuss everything in. In more detail. So, the main theoretical pillar in your work is the concept of informal imperialism. That's why I'd I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about it. First, what do we mean when we talk about informal imperialism? Then, why do you find this heuristic insightful? And why is this idea especially useful to understand Britain's relationship with economically weaker countries?
1: Yes, I mean it is absolutely important key issue in the in the book, and I, I devote the, the introduction to defining uh, informal in imperialism, to looking at how the concept has gone through a number of phases. Uh, very uh, famously, a pair of ec- academic uh, British academics, uh, Gallagher and Robinson, in 1953, wrote. Uh, a, an article in which they interpreted Britain's uh, development of its empire, not in the conventional idea of painting the the, the, the world red, i.e., sending, uh, uh, dominating and and taking over countries, um, or, uh, or or even even um, uh, in, as in Australia, uh, occupying um, and 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 pushing people out, so that. What they said was that, in a sense, was the second uh, level of the British Empire and not the primary draw. What they argued uh, was that uh, Britain's need, uh, as its Industrial Revolution launched in the early 19th century, it found that it didn't have sufficient domestic markets, particularly for its cotton goods, Uh, and later its engineering production was so dynamic it was so way ahead of the rest of the world that it could do two things one is it needed new markets the british market was uh, pretty tied up by the 1820s Um, and if you date the industrial revolution uh, the launch of the factory and the machine in a serious way from the 1780s by 40 years of that Britain's market was uh, was uh, exhausted. So um, what uh, Gallagher Robinson argued was that Britain then needed to find markets for its new industries, and it used the idea of free trade uh, to open up um, markets in other countries, which were then very protected ones in Europe in particular. Uh, and, and and actually in the in the Americas as well, all those were protected markets. What it wanted to do was to open those up. And what its its bargain was: look, you, we can offer you markets for your products. Uh, we can um, supply uh, uh, in exchange for you opening your markets. We're not insisting on uh, on you buying our goods. We're simply saying. Let's have no uh, as free trade as possible, as few tariffs barriers as possible, because they knew that their production costs were so much ahead of everybody else that they could dominate it. So what informal imperialism is, is an economic uh, idea in which you go into a country, you uh, try and uh, reduce its tariffs, you then... uh, bargain with the elites to uh, ensure that your uh, your markets, uh, their markets are open to you. And then uh, you can dominate the economy and these countries without actually the expense of running them or the difficult politics that's involved in, in running them. And that uh, idea of informal imperialism as the way of explaining um, the development of the British Empire was very powerful and uh, got a lot of support. It then fell out of favour um, because um, the, the, it's quite hard to define. When, for example, uh, is do you move from simply an imbalance of trading power uh, between countries to imperialism, which implies a much deeper form of domination. And Gallagher and Robinson were rather vague on that point. And so historians... Uh, many historians said, look, this isn't a precise enough definition to allow us to use it as a framework. And they tried to show that uh, others, uh, this doesn't explain everything in the development of the British Empire. So there was a lot of controversy. And I think what's brought it back into play is a recognition that it you can't do without it. How do you explain uh, how Britain and most particularly how America in the post-war period has managed to dominate uh, the economy using free trade as a model. And um, that I think the reproduction of um, uh, informal imperialism under America has said, well, wait a minute, there is, even if it's difficult uh, sometimes to define everything, there's a core truth here about how countries actually operate and how they develop. So, uh what the argument comes is when you get a dominant hegemonic uh, uh power as you got in the 19th century in britain its ability to dominate the world trading uh, routes and its financial dominance when you get that you, uh, you and and a very efficient modernizing economy you are able to dominate uh and buy off the elites and dominate countries and um uh that i think can be argued just as uh true or as i said of of america in the post-war uh, post second world war phase when it uh, was uh, the dominant hegemonic power so uh, i think informal imperialism has reappeared as a, an important uh, historical uh, idea why it's uh, my i think i think my innovation is to say if that worked as galahan robinson argued for countries in and uh, particularly in Africa and South America, and the Argentine example is the one that um, is most often uh, uh, quoted. Um, why would you not see, uh, particularly the um, problematic economies, the, diff- the less developed economies in Europe, also falling within it, uh, within the power of the uh, of the um, of Britain's informal empire? And I suppose that's really uh, the the core of what I'm proposing in this, uh, that uh, Spain's uh, economic weakness and its strategic weakness, its military weakness um, relative to Britain, opened it out to uh, domination. And the reason, uh, and this is very important, the reason I argue that it amounted to informal imperialism rather than just, if you like, economic... Uh, uh, overwhelming economic power is because um, Britain ensured, over a long period, that Spain's, um, both its economic policy and its um, political um, attitudes, reflected British interests. And crucially, at key points, when Spain looked as if it might move out of the British uh, British influence, Britain intervened poli- uh, militarily. And that, to me, is, is what I use as the the key differentiation, if you like, between simply having uh, more economic power and having a situation of you know, informal imperialism. And the reason for it was this strategic um Uh, driver, because Spain was geographically right at the hinge of Britain's imperial trade routes to India, to Africa, to South America, Uh, and particularly when the Suez Canal opened up, it became absolutely crucial. And uh, Britain was uh, desperate to ensure that none of the uh, empires to the east in particular found uh, an alliance to Spain, which would then enable those powers, Germany, uh, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, to have some sort of strategic naval uh, base uh, that would might threaten Britain's crucial trade routes. And uh, Gibraltar was the key uh, base for that. One British admiral in the uh, late uh, 19th century said there are five keys that lock up the globe um, and Gibraltar was one of them the others included Dover uh, the channel, key trade route into northern Europe uh, Singapore, the China uh, and obviously Suez so Gibraltar a, 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 bit, well, a bit was a core defence requirement for the full uh, period that I'm considering 1830 right up to uh, 1945 um, in the Second World War. So it was those two issues, um, trade, economic um, exploitation, um, and the strategic position of Spain uh, in Britain's uh, imperial network. Mm -hmm. Well, then in chapter two, You
2: described the role of British envoys to Spain as kingmakers during the First Carlist War. Could you give us an overview of this conflagration and uh, what role did the the British state and British capital play in it?
1: The Carlist War, the First Carlist War, was the the, the, absolutely key uh, hinge point for British uh, intervention. Um, when Ferdinand died, the British very quickly moved in to support the liberal monarchy, uh, and um, it had two motives. One, uh, the one I've just given, the, the strategic need to ensure Spain didn't become allied with uh, the holy alliance of uh, Prussia, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, uh, and the economic, um, the need to find new markets for the dynamic uh, cotton industry so uh, and they were very clear from the beginning that that's what they wanted the monarchy to do when the monarchy when don carlos uh, they uh, they um, uh, threatened um the the new monarch on, on the argument that he should have been uh, chosen um and it shouldn't have gone to uh, down the female line um don carlos was very committed uh, to building this alliance with uh, with Prussia, uh, Russia, and Austria-Hungary, and um, so they Britain saw Don Carlos not simply as disturbing their relationship with uh, the new liberal monarchy, which they wanted to survive. They saw him as a existential threat, and um, they therefore allied with. Uh, particularly with France to uh, ensure that that uh, comfort, that they, um, they uh, the support for for the uh, uh, for for, uh, for the liberal monarchy and they uh, although France contributed to it there was no question that it was a british initiative in the 1830s they wanted a trade-friendly regime And uh, when that was threatened, they put in massive support. Uh, They put uh, arms, munitions... They blockaded the whole of the north uh, part of the Bay of Biscay to, to make sure Car- the, the Carlos wars couldn 't the Carlis armies couldn 't be supplied. They made use their growing power in the city of London to uh, try and uh, prevent any uh, loans being raised and they put in a ten thousand strong army uh, into to, to, to support the liberal monarchy so this was a major uh, military intervention. And it reminds one, I think, of similar initiatives that the Americans have put put in over the years, not least in parts of Central America and um, in Southeast Asia. You can see this is the way to prop up a regime that they see as critical and uh, they see as having a, a, an important uh, economic. So what we see in the 1830s is uh, Lord Palmerston, who's the foreign secretary, uh, very quickly, the week, uh, the, the month before Per Ferdinand died, gets his very close friend, George Villiers, uh, as what they called minister, not ambassador, but minister uh, into uh, Spain. And one can see, and this is where the archives are fascinating, the Uh, letters that go backwards and forwards from Villiers to Palmerston through the 1830s. Uh, absolutely show that um, the British were kingmakers. They were very close to the monarchy. They advised on the composition of cabinets. Uh, they uh, were key influences on who the prime ministers were. They advised on military tactics. And, of course, the reason they could do that was that they had, uh, they were supplying the arms which uh, and the resources that kept the armies uh, alive, so that is is what they did, and, and as I say, you can see how closely the um, relationship between the monarchy and the government, various governments during the eighteen thirties, was, and of course, the peace of um, the the, the piece at the end of the war was supervised by the British. Um, in, uh, in drawing the water of clothes. So that whole period of uh, 1833 to 1839, the period of the Carlos War, was one in which Britain played a leading role. And I, I think that's not really understood, let alone the motives which drove it. Right. And then,
2: in the third chapter of the book's first part, you examine a nowadays mostly forgotten conflict, the war between Spain and the Moroccan Sultanate. Yet this war is far from being an irrelevant historical episode. Indeed, you argue that at this moment we can already recognize the formation of an embryonic national Spanish identity in the shadow of Britain's ever-vigilant empire. How did the war begin and why did the Spanish government at the time decide to pursue it? On the other hand, how did Britain manage the risk this conflict posed to its trade
1: routes? Very interesting. And you're absolutely right. The Africa War has, I think, been neglected as a key turning point. It didn't have any enormous uh, long-term impact on, for example, who was running uh, Morocco. But what it showed uh, was two things. By the late 1850s, Spain had uh, Spain's economy was beginning to modernize so uh, Spain was more confident it, it, it intervened in wars in uh, South America as you well know um, in the 1850s it um, but its major interest was in, <laughs> in South, uh, of Spain I- over in Morocco it saw an opportunity there with its new uh, uh, its new wealth growing wealth and uh, army uh, who had been a, a threat to domestic politics um, there'd been a number of pronunciamientos uh, during the 1840s and uh, there was a worry that um, the army uh well, well uh, the, the army could be best used uh, not to undermine spanish um uh, spanish stability but to pursue spain's imperial dreams in africa this is a time when other imperial powers were beginning uh, the french in algeria initially and then uh, along a, a, a North African coast, Britain's uh, it, exploration of, of, of Africa. There was a beginning of a, a, right at the end of the 1850s, a sense that Africa was opened up and Spain wanted their share of that. Uh, they therefore manufactured essentially a war to give Spain an excuse to uh, march in. And they did so with great uh, popular support. Um, the idea that uh, Spain was now had recovered from the humiliation of the Napoleonic Wars and the subsequent um, economic decline, that it was now on the up and could regain its position as a great European power. And why? so they manufactured a a dispute with the the Sultan in, in Morocco. And uh, launched an expedition to, as they said, punish the uh, tribesmen who'd attacked one of their forts in Meia and uh, Feuta. So they launched this expedition, which actually showed how uh, weak the army was, uh, but it eventually did... Uh, uh, managed to uh, conquer the the, uh, the key town. And based on that, they then said, well, why don't we move on to Tangiers um, and uh, f- dominate uh, and, and acquire territory? And it was at that point that Britain said, we don't mind you, uh, quotes punishing the tribesmen. But as soon as Spain looked like it might stay, uh, they stepped up, they stopped the army in its tracks. Literally, they said, uh, do, "Do not go any further." Uh, and the army had to stop and retreat. And the reason was that the whole army was being supplied across the Gibraltar Straits, and Britain denom- do not, uh, dominated that. So Britain could literally turn off the tap that supplied the army, uh, and um, uh, and uh, the. Uh, the Spanish army was forced to retreat to its bases and then out of the country. So, um, but during that process, uh, a very interesting um Happen. And that's what I wanted to point to, the birth of a national opinion in Spain. Because by the 1850s, you had the railways uh, beginning to network across the country. You had the telegraph. You had newspapers being distributed around the country. So, uh, so you could see the beginning of an infrastructure in which the very dispersed uh, geography and politics of Spain was beginning to create a national uh, feeling. And when you combine that with the dreams of uh, of, of imperialism, uh, and there was a really massive uh, a, a support for this intervention. And I think it's one of the few times when you could look to Spain and say there was a genuine enthusiasm for war uh, across the classes. Uh, most wars in Spain have been deeply unpopular amongst uh, one part of the population or another. Um, but this one genuinely brought people together in support. And the humiliation when Britain literally just pulled the rug under their, uh, uh, under their um, feet was intense. And there was a very strong anti-British feeling that spread throughout the country. Um and you can see, I think, why it's important is you can see the, this uh, during the rest of the century, leading to uh, Spanish dreams of intervention in Morocco, uh, and that's there's a whole story there in which I deal with in the uh, in, in the post eighteen ninety eight disaster when Spain uh, and and the colonization of Morocco uh, by France, um, so. Um, that the Moroccan dream, if you like, was launched in 1859, and the idea of a Spanish public who participated in and supported that was also born at that point. So it has uh, no immediate uh, impact on diplomacy, but it had long-term impact on on these uh, on how Spain cope with the rest of the world.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: British policy, leading up to and during the First World War. Because if I'm not mistaken, in the years leading up to 1914, as well as during the war, uh, British policy regarding Spain was mainly concerned with the protection of strategic supply chains. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the magnitude of British actions to this end was quite significant, even hard to grasp. What was the strategic significance of Spain and its trade with Britain? And moreover, which means did the British state
1: use to secure these crucial supply chains? Very, very important. And and again, I think that's one of the things this book really tries to bring out, uh, which is how important in the latter part of the 19th century, how important the Spanish minerals were to... Uh, the british economy but actually to the european economy it was before the supply of uh, copper iron sulfur uh, developed throughout the world not least in in uh, in america uh, both north and south became key suppliers uh, and africa later on and australia but all those developments really were only beginning in the late 19th century. And Spain was accessible. It had this extraordinary uh, sources of mineral wealth, um, particularly down in the south, in, in the oh. province of Huelva, and in um, the Basque country, with the great iron ore supplies, very uh, 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 iron ore that was particularly appropriate to the way that steel was, was, was produced. So Those minerals uh, were absolutely key in the second phase of the Industrial Revolution. The first phase was powered by coal and steam and iron. The second phase turned to chemicals, electricals, uh, in which sulfur and copper became crucial elements. And Spain was the source for Europe of of those minerals. And Britain made sure that it uh, used its power to dominate the supply chains of of that minerals. Uh, It it itself had run out of its initial iron ore uh, and was desperate uh, and bought up uh, many of the rights to uh, the iron ore mines in the Basque country and dominated um, the production of uh, uh, copper and sulfur uh, through Uh, Owning the biggest companies, two of the biggest companies, uh, which were world leaders in in production. And the British economy became very tied to that. And particularly at times of war, these uh, minerals that I'm talking about were crucial to munitions. And so in the First World War and the Second World War, those uh, minerals, the supply of those minerals, was absolutely central to Britain. And there was a real worry at one point in 1917 uh, that uh, Britain uh, would not be able to uh, acquire sufficient of those minerals to keep the Western Front going. And there was a whole idea of building... Uh, particularly after the submarine war um, um, uh, destroyed a lot of the Spanish fleet, um, and the uh, Britain couldn't use use them. They were actually going to do, try and do it by rail. It was so uh, important to them. So I'm just really emphasising how key uh, that those uh, that was, and the way Britain guaranteed that was to blockade uh, the um, uh, the peninsula, the the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, on a number of occasions, but the second world, first world war and the second world war was very important. The first world war was extraordinary. Not only did Britain blockade it, it then uh, also controlled the coal supply uh, to uh, the rest of Spain and used that to um, actually acquire a lot of um, industry that uh, other foreign industries. So they pushed out a lot of the. Uh, uh, allies, uh, the um, uh, Germans and uh, the, the Dutch industry and acquired it themselves and even the French. So economic competition was going on even as they uh, as they uh, fought the war but, um, because everyone wanted to be in a good position after the war so you can see how a- a- economic interests uh, Spain as a prize in this uh, w- were, w- was absolutely central to to a-, a whole dimension of the war which again I think we over concentrate on the Western front and and that and don't think about some of the things that drove it and it made Spain a very important actor in the First World War although of course it was neutral formally. That's great I think that we can now move
2: to the more uh, uh, to, the, to the side of your work that's uh, more related to uh, intellectual and political history mm-hmm. because well, could you tell us a, a little bit about Edouard Jean-Andréu uh, Juan Güell y Ferrer, and the nature of the relationship. Moreover, could you explain their political project of protectionist liberalism? Because I feel this could sound like an oxymoron to many of our listeners.
1: Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely and i think well the, the, this is one of the the second main argument that i'm trying to introduce into the book the first is around uh, the idea of the informal empire and its long-lasting uh, life through the the, the century uh, over a century the second argument uh, as i said earlier is how that impacted on spanish politics and um I interpret the Spanish protectionism that emerged in Catalonia, but was later joined by the Basque country, uh, uh, indus, the industrialists in the Basque country. I interpret that as not simply uh, as traditional historians uh, have, have often characterized it as a self-interested protection of their particular markets. Uh, they're just going to impose inefficient industry to, to make sure that they uh, they can keep up their profits, um, and, uh, and by implication, keeping Spain um uh, in uh, economic second place. That's the traditional argument, and why I think you're absolutely right. Many people would see it as oxymoronic to, 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 to uh, or even a contradiction in terms to talk about protectionism and uh, and um, and economic development. And it's important to see how deeply um, that idea was embedded in Spain. The Madrid elite uh, and the commercial interests, the international commercial interests in Cadiz, for example, and Barcelona uh, were, were, were part of this. They, For them, free trade meant commerce. It meant uh, they were banking it, raising the cash for it. So they saw anything that threatened uh, trade with the rest of the world as... Um, as a threat and that they they they, they, were, they were so strong those um feelings um that by 1869 the um uh, in, in, in la, the, the revolution this is called la gloriosa um we saw uh, an adoption by the regime of a total free trade uh, model but that meant uh, that the uh, interests of industry uh, were destroyed. And I, I've got a great quote um, from uh, the British uh, in the 1840s when they were trying to ensure that free trade allowed British um, uh, British uh, cotton goods in. It's um, the amb- ambassador the British ambassador, who was negotiating with the Spanish government, said it is assumed that the admission of British cottons at moderate duties will entirely destroy the manufacturers of Catalonia. To compensate... Uh, for this branch of national industry, it will be necessary to make large concessions in favour of agricultural interests, particularly for Catalan wines. And what you see here is it's a quote that absolutely illustrates how Britain wanted to see uh, dependent countries like Spain. It knew that it needed... um, to if it wanted to sell goods into Spain, it had to have a way of those uh, goods being paid for. And where they, Britain, saw countries like uh, Spain, but equally uh, countries in South America, uh, was as food suppliers, and uh, they wanted to make uh, prevent any um, uh, any rivals, industrial rivals, springing up. So the British um, economic policy was absolutely uh, clear. It wanted to destroy uh, industrial rivals and compensate for Britain's enormous population expansion, which it couldn't feed itself by drawing food in from the rest of the world. Now, the reaction in in Spain uh, was the Catalan industrialists came up with an alternative model of economic development. Um, They were not simply about defending regional interests uh, in in the area. They said, we want uh, to see the whole of Spain develop an industrial economy. We want to put industry at the forefront of economic development. And given that uh, our industry is relatively undeveloped we will need a period of protection uh, in order to allow it to develop moreover we will need the government to help support this uh, small companies operating by themselves will not be any um, will not be any will not be sufficient to overwhelm the uh overwhelming power of uh, uh, of uh, the modern economy in britain and so that basic idea of defending uh your infant industry actually emerged very early in spain in the uh, early part of the century with and, and was best expressed by udal chamandreu who was an uh, uh, augustin priest and economist who argued uh, on behalf of the Barcelona uh, manufacturers for a model which said, um, keep uh, industri- keep your industrial competitors at bay while you develop the industry. And this was not a permanent thing. What they saw, it was a necessary step towards um, uh, being a competitive uh, model. And I think that's the key issue here. All the protectionists that I go through in the 19th century, the liberal protectionists, all saw um, protectionism as a temporary stage in economic development. Uh, And real protectionism would be simply uh, to pretend that the world didn't exist, uh, the rest of the world didn't exist, uh, and that they could guarantee a, a closed economy. Uh, that was far from what they wanted. These were a a faction of the elite um, that wanted to see a different economic model. And I think the key thing to emphasize is that uh, that was the route that the United States and Germany used to develop their industry. And indeed, Britain itself was one of the most protected economies in the 18th century when the Industrial Revolution developed. So the idea of protecting your industry, building its strength, and then launching yourself into the world market uh, had a very some very good examples. Uh, so this wasn't as I say, some uh, reactionary, inward-looking force. These were people who were really plugged into the world, acutely aware of the weakness of the Spanish uh, industrial economy relative to the rest of the world, uh, and determined to try and argue for the state protecting them uh, and uh, also supporting them. Mm
2: -hmm. And now I think that this question is important. (laughs) So how does the protectionist... Uh, liberalism that flourished in the 19th century and persisted well into the 20th one uh, differ from the nationalistic autarkic tradition embraced by the Franco regime.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a fascinating story of how the liberal protectionism of uh, that I've just been talking about launched in the early 19th century by Chamondreu, and then taken up notably by a man called Juan Guel, who became a key uh, industrialist in the mid-19th century and who, for 30 years, argued the case that I've just been uh, discussing. Uh, and uh, indeed, there were liberal protectionists right up to the beginning of the 20th century. And I, I go into some of those uh, people, Santiago Alba, for example, and before him, uh, Pablo de Dola, the great Basque uh, politician. Uh, so there were uh, this strand of liberal protectionism was influential, but it never won the support of governments through the 19th century until. Uh, the great agricultural crisis of the 1870s, um, when uh, that industrial argument, uh, how do we develop industry, was joined by the um, great wheat growers, uh, particularly in in Andalusia and Castile, uh, who um, were very concerned about preserving their markets um, uh, from... um, Uh, both domestically and notably in Cuba um, from the uh, opening up of of, uh, the very competitive um, wheat supply that was emerging from the United States and then slightly later on from Russia as the new uh, steamships and trains could bring this massive amounts of wheat onto the world market. And so they... Um, particularly the Castile wheat growers um, were uh, key in uh, tipping the ideological balance at the end of the 19th century from free trade into protectionism and during the uh, 1880s and 1890s led by Canovas the great um, prime minister of seven times prime minister of Spain the, the, the conservative uh adopted protectionism um, on national grounds, arguing very strongly that uh, the country was being uh, undermined by the export of all its precious products uh, in the minerals uh, and uh, that it needed this protection. But the policy that emerged uh, was not the liberal protectionist model. It was a very conservative model that was about preserving the uh, social structure particularly in the 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 land owning market the the landowners interests and so by the time we see um, the 20th century um, protectionism is becoming a conservative not a dynamic uh, force. Uh, There were attempts under Primo de Rivera for example to try and um, Uh, and his finance minister, uh, who I deal with at some length, Calvo Sotelo, to try and revive that model by investing in the infrastructure in Spain of in trying to get some government intervention in industry, um, something that Guell had argued for in the 1850s uh, only appeared in a rather uh, moderate form in the 1920s. So uh, by then it was really hard work, particularly when the slump came in the late 1920s. And that swept... Uh, This away. So Franco, uh, by the time Franco uh, takes over from 19, obviously, beginning in 1936, and then finally 1939, uh, there is a a emergence of a very conservative view of uh, trade. Uh, and investment, and that is a fully autarkic model that uh, uh, argues that you can create a self-contained, self-sufficient economy based on military power rather than international competitiveness. And you get this uh, during the 1940s in particular, but deep into the 1950s, you find that um, this autarkic model uh, uh, it ends up by failing um but it it comes out of that um conservative move of the um or taken to extremes that conservative turn of protectionism in the late 19th century
2: right well before we end uh could you explain or name some of the key economic transformations that uh, did happen after the autarchic
1: turn yeah i mean basically franco's policy uh, an ideal at length in the book with how that was formed by uh Schwanthes, the his the architect of his uh policy um uh who has had an immensely powerful role uh from the late 1930s right the way through until the mid uh, mid fifties, when um, he uh, ran the intervention, uh, economic intervention, um, and economic policy, basically, and what became clear during the uh, 19, uh, early nineteen fifties were two things. First of all, the policy uh, was not um, leading to uh, industrial. Uh, development. Um, Spain was stuck um, in, in, in and couldn't even feed its own population in the nineteen forties. And the other thing that was happening was that America was assuming the uh, its hegemonic role in both strategy, the anti the, the, the move to uh, 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 the Cold War, if you like, and its domination of the financial system. And America pushed. Uh, They uh, pushed Franco, with the support increasingly of the new technocrats who were uh, uh, coming up in Spain in the 1950s, towards uh, a neoliberal model, opening it out to the world – opening the country out to the world – uh, world markets both in investment and trade and th- that's by the end of the 1950s um, we have the stabilization plan uh, which um, and, and f- closely followed by the final expulsion of Schwantes from uh, from uh, Spanish government so that crucial few years at the end of the 50s you see a fundamental change uh And through the 1960s, the uh, opening up to tourism, the gradual uh, opening of the economy, um, which doesn't really take off uh, until the death of Franco and the accession to Europe in the European Common Market, as it was, uh, or the European Community in in the uh, 1980s, but that key moment in 1959, uh, begins to chart a whole new direction for uh, Spanish policy.
2: Now, before we leave, I'd like to thank you very very much for for taking the time to talk with me, Nick. Uh, I'd like to ask you what projects loom in your future.
1: Yeah, I, I've, I'm I'm been drawn into uh, this world of the 19th century, I suppose. And what really interests me is how liberal politics developed in Spain, because I, I, as I've tried to explain, I think the liberal protectionists were an important force in uh, in in Spain. Uh, and more to the point, um, l- how liberal politics. Emerged as a reaction, uh, in a wider sense, uh, to uh, the invasion of modernity that uh, Britain represented. So, I'm, what I'm looking at a new uh, are, are the influence of um, Britain's economic ideas. Um, people uh, of uh, in the early 19th century, uh, um, Adam Smith's successors like David Ricardo, Jeremy Bentham. They were all very involved with the um, exiliados, the people who had been pushed out uh, during the wars, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, and ended up in London and absorbed a lot of these uh, economic and political ideas. And but giving it a, a, a very Spanish feel. So the whole constitution, the Cadiz constitution, uh, to me is a fascinating way in which uh, political and economic modernity happened. And then all the way through the century, you get um, invasion of, uh, of, British in, of, of British employers in Rio Tinto Zinc, for example, who then impose the, uh, the law of the market. And Spain's liberal politics is partly accepting partly rejecting it so my project is to trace it through but what makes it really interesting to me is working with colleagues in Nottingham to relate those economic and political trends to the way that literary and philosophical thinking developed in Spain so it's trying to If you like, have a dimension of of looking at um, philosophy and and, and literary development in Spain through this, uh, the new eyes of, of, of. uh, the materialistic culture, the liberal ideas that were spreading, and some of the conflicts within it. So it's a big project. I hope we can bring it off. Uh, but it's essentially a multidisciplinary one, which I'm very committed to. Long durée, working across boundaries. That, to me, is the future of uh, of history. That sounds
2: great, Nick. Uh, for the listeners, uh, we discussed today with him... Uh, Britain's Informal Empire in Spain, 1830 to 1950, Free Trade, Protectionism and Military Power, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you, Nick, for your time.